We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from Investors Group Financial Services, Inc. Call now. Leave a message. They will return your call at 905-529-7165. And check out the website, andyanddon.com. There you can listen to old shows and also ask a question via the listener inquiry button. Good morning, gentlemen. Good, Good to morning. see you. Good morning, Scott. everyone. I was here like an hour earlier. Where the heck are you guys? <laughs> the classic daylight savings oh, mistake. Oh, my goodness. New bat time for for the show. Uh, from uh, now moving forward, uh, planning your financial future will be heard between 8 and 9 a.m. Yes, every Saturday morning. exciting. So everybody's wide awake now. They've had their coffee That's right. right, now. right now. <laughs> Where's the show? The second Pen and tie. Where's Pen that hand. show? Uh, top, uh, top 10 RSP questions. Yes, and it's interesting. It's you know, Obviously, we're in the kind of the f- last week of RSP week here. Mm-hmm. You know, it's uh, March 1st is the deadline. And we're running into it. And there's certainly RSPs are on the tip of a lot of people's tongue right now. And it's interesting, when we're talking about retirement, um, first of all, most Canadians, um, they look, the averages of age to retire right now is 63. Mm. So it turns out it wasn't Freedom 55. Yeah, whatever age, happened to that? Age of, hmm. age, freedom 63. I would be there by now. <laughs> it was okay as long as you died at 65. Yeah, yes. <laughs> Longevity yeah. was a bit of a risk. Yeah, really. Um, and it turns out you'll need, on average, for the average Canadian, will need seven hundred fifty-six thousand mm-hmm. dollars in retirement savings mm-hmm. to live on. Now that this average thing always bothers me because it doesn't take into account who had a pension plan, who doesn't have a pension right. plan. Where do you live? Mm-hmm. Do you live in Toronto or do you live in I don't know, Sault Ste. Marie? Yeah, you know, um, or Halifax or or something else. Because certainly the quality of life differs based on the income. Yep. Okay. So I always look at average. So I don't really like to look at average. Um, in fact, a lot of people ask me the question, how much money do I need to retire? And I said, well, how much do you spend? That's the number one question. Yeah. What's your burn rate? How yeah. much you burn through a month? <laughs> okay. You know, it's, I, you just said that. And I can remember how many times clients who have heard us on the radio have said, just like you guys say, it's not how much you need, it's how much you're going to spend. Yeah. That's it, yeah. yeah. And it turns out 90% of Canadians, although they, they find this very important, the retirement planning, 90% don't have a plan. Mm. And we can't tell you how important this is. It's hard to get to the destination without a plan. We do yeah. it for everything else in our lives. Mm. You know, we're going to go to a, on a trip. We got a roadmap, yeah. Or at least we use, you know, Google Maps or something. Mm-hmm. Okay, <laughs> it's we we have a we have a plan, and it's hard to have a plan sometimes because it seems overwhelming. Who do we talk to? It doesn't have to be a complicated plan, especially at, as the younger ages go. But it, we do need to have some kind of plan, and it really it turns out that fifty three percent aren't even sure if they have enough. Hmm. And this is actually an interesting thing. I, I find a lot of people underlive. Yeah. They're still not sure if they have enough money and they have too much. There's no chance they're going to have a problem. In fact, I often say to certain clients, I say, okay, if you have issues in terms of you don't think you have enough, I've got a whole bunch of clients yeah. that have got issues way before you do. Yeah, okay? exactly. Because you have way too much. Um, but 37% have not even saved or even considered retirement yet. Hmm. 37%. So a third of Canadians haven't even thought of it. Never mind putting a nickel towards it. It turns out millennials are, are the worst case. Mm. Okay, millennials are having the toughest time. First of all, they need the most. Mm-hmm. They need about 917,000 because right now a millennial is between the ages of 18 and 34. Mm-hmm. Okay, Generation X is a little, a little older. They don't need quite as much, 842,000. And baby boomers, which we all fall into right here, uh, 518,000. And that would be a, a baby boomer is anybody over 55 right now. Right. Okay. And it turns out that 38... So theoretically, I'm not a baby boomer. 
You're at 55, aren't you not? (laughs) (laughs) Squeaking under that wire. Just getting there. You're right on the board. Close enough. You're on the cusp. That's it. So only 38% of people that are 25 to 34 are even saving anything. Hmm. Now, I say only. We've been doing this for a lot of years. I bet you that number hasn't changed one bit. Yeah. yeah. Okay. It's always been an issue of trying to get people to save at an early age. Mm -hmm. Procrastination is, is a big deal. And, uh, you know, 46% considered a top priority, mm-hmm. but only 30 and 38% are even, aren't even doing any. And then at the end of the, it's funny, millennials, 48% of millennials actually are putting money in tax-free savings accounts versus 30% are putting it into RSPs. Mm-hmm. So you go back, a, you know, not even 10 years ago because TFSAs weren't even around, everything went to RSPs yeah. back then. Now m- a lot more are putting in TFSAs and is that, that good? Because that it's as you guys call it, it's not sticky. It's not sticky. Mm-hmm. It may you know for a millennial, uh, it, unless they have a good plan and yeah. they're disciplined. Because if they're in a low tax bracket and they're waiting for a higher bracket to put their tax free savings account money into it at that time, great plan. Because uh, let's say they're only making forty thousand now, but they expect to be making eighty thousand s- within a few years. Great idea. Put it in TFSA at a low bracket. Move it into an RSP when they get to a higher bracket. Mm-hmm. But if they're simply putting in TFSAs, thinking, well, you know what, I, I may be pulling it out, well, then they go right back to zero. Yeah. They have no more money and saved at all. Right. So to get back to the original question, what are the top 10 RSP questions? And the number one right now, we find out because of the tax-free savings accounts, like there's some competition now. Mm-hmm. Are RSPs a waste of time? And I would say no. Okay, absolutely not. Uh, first of all, even if you have a, a pension fund, you can't get to it. So an RSP, if you're, let's say you're a teacher and you're making 90000 a year. Well, you're in a 40% tax bracket, let's call it. And so if you put money into an RSP, you're going to save uh, $1,000 into an RSP, save you 400 bucks. So not a bad thing, but it's a great area to have money just for its employment insurance. Mm-hmm. If you ever lose your job, it's nice to fall back on something other than unemployment insurance. So you saved up the 40% bracket, well, if you're out unemployed for a while, at least you have some money to fall back on and you'll likely not be in a high bracket those years because yeah. you're not working. Or if, let's say you take some time off for a, sympati- a sabbatical or you, you want to raise kids mm-hmm. and you want to have this augment your income. It's another way of doing it. Um, it's great for income splitting. So, it, you know, fantastic if your your husband or wife has, a, has no uh, pension plan. You might have the pension fund. Well, then you put it into a spousal RSP and you can build up his or hers. Okay. Uh, it also shows up on your net worth. It's also part of your net worth. You, pension funds don't show up on your net worth. When you're yeah. doing a, uh, a net worth statement for the bank for borrowing, they don't ask, well, what's your pension worth? Yeah. Okay, because they know they can't ever touch it. Yeah. It's never accessible. RSPs, although they not really can be used as collateral, they still show up that your net worth um, mm-hmm. is so much. And so it does help you for borrowing. And they are fantastic for forcing you to save money. Mm-hmm. Okay, fantastic. Because they are sticky, as you said. Um, they might be a waste if you're in a higher bracket um, later. So this is where you may want to put it in a TFSA and wait for you are in a higher bracket. So I had a, a, a daughter of a client of mine call me um, this past week. And she is going to run up the income scale quite quickly with her company. So I actually recommend that she put money in tax-free savings accounts now, and she'll be making quite a bit of money, uh, a big difference in her pay 
within two years. Mm -hmm. So that's where it would have been a bit of a waste for her, but at least she's saving. Yeah. Okay, she's putting money away. Um, and it's a bit of a waste I, I have come across where people have too much in RSPs mm -hmm. and they're not spending it and they're only saving at say 30%. Well, they could be taxed upon death at 53 and a half percent. So I would say you got to watch the other end when you're going to cash this money in. Right. It might become a big estate problem. So are they a waste of time? Most cases not, but for certain situations, they could be. And that's where a financial planner should be able to distinguish which is a better situation for you. Mm -hmm. um, what's the difference? This is another question we get a lot. What's the difference between an RSP and a TFSA? Well, first of all, they started a lot of different times. Uh, RSP started in 1957. Okay, so they've uh, been around for quite some time. I guess it's 61 years now. Mm -hmm. TFSA has just started in 2008. Uh, there's age restrictions in a TFSA. You have to be 18 to open a TFSA up. And you can keep contributing to them as long as you're alive. Mm -hmm. Okay. RSPs, you can start as soon as you have some income. Right. So if you're working, you're making, you're, uh, I don't know, uh, in commercials or something, and, or you're a rock star at age 14, you're making mm -hmm. lots of money, you can contribute to an RSP. Right. But you have to start contributing the year you turn 71. Mm -hmm. In fact, you have to start pulling the money out the following year. So there's some differences there. Contribution limits are quite different. Eight, uh, RSP is 18% of your income, up to approximately 26,000 this year. Uh, it really, I don't even look at the number anymore because it's on your notice of assessment. Right. And so where TFSA is, it's 5,500 this year. And right now your lifetime amount that you could put in, if you've been over 18 f since 2008, is 50, 57,500. And uh, one of the biggest differences, you're using pre-tax dollars to put in the RSP, just like a pension. Yeah. So if you're a part of a pension, you're putting pre-tax dollars in, you take the money out, you're paying tax on it. Um, TFSAs, you're using after-tax money. So you're not going to get any tax refund mm -hmm. or any tax savings, right. but you don't pull, you don't pay tax on the way out. Yeah. And they, how are they taxed while they're in the plan? Are they taxed any differently? Not at all. Mm -hmm. They just grow tax-free the whole time. And this makes them both great to have part of your fixed income. So if you've got a portion of your money that you want to have earning interest or perhaps even dividends, you would like, it's probably best to have it in your TFSA or RSP. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Both are great for that. Um, and of course there's the withdrawal taxes are the difference because again, one is pre-tax money, one's post-tax money. Mm -hmm. So how much should I have in my RSP? Now going back to that question, yeah. how much should, how much do I need for retirement? Again, how much income do you want? What tax bracket are you going to be in? Um, will you be able to split your income? If you're single, you may not want to have quite as much into your RSPs because you uh, may you may limit your old age security, mm -hmm. okay? Because once you start making over 75,000 a year, you start getting old age security clawback. So again, watching that number as you get older, you, you can actually have too much in RSPs and, and you may be saving at a low rate and then paying at 53.5%. So you really need to look at what are your short-term goals, your medium-term goals, and your long-term goals. Everybody's different with this, but you really got to look this, find out what's important to you and if it's really for long-term planning to give you an income, RSPs are fantastic for that. Uh, now, here's a question I quite often get. How do I pay less on taking my money out of my RSPs? Hmm. Oh, it's great. Everybody wants the tax savings going in, but nobody really wants to pay the tax on the way out. Yeah. Okay. And this is where spousal RSPs, I know Andy talked about this last, uh, last show, last week was, 
you know, if you can split it with your spouse, fantastic. That's one way to, you know, save at a high rate, pay at a low rate. One thing a lot of people don't know about is you can actually move your spouse's money in a spousal RSP into a RIF. And even though they're, let's say, only 55 years old, it mm-hmm. doesn't matter what age, <clears throat> they can start taking out the minimum. And it's not attributed back to you. In fact, you can keep adding to your spousal RSP, keep growing it, mm-hmm. and keep moving it to a RIF all the time, and they'll keep getting another, uh, uh, augment their income. Yeah. And if they're in a low bracket or have no income, what a great way to save at a high bracket, pay at a lower bracket. And the one that I do find people do miss is that $2,000 pension credit. Mm. So if you're over 65 uh, and you do not have a, a, a pension in, of any other source, uh, not including old age security or Canada pension plan, make sure you move some money from your RSP to a RIF and take out that $2,000. It, it qualifies for the pension credit. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from Investors Group Financial Services, Inc. Leave a message. Call now at 905-529-7165. Check out the website at andyanddon.com. We're coming right back. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from Investors Group Financial Services, Inc. Call now. Leave a message at 905-529-7165. And the website, andyanddon.com. You can also listen to old shows there and of course ask a question via the listener inquiry button we're talking about most asked questions regarding rsps yes and tis the time tis the season right now so Mm -hmm. one number five fifth question here is what happens if you over contribute to your rsp Mm -hmm. so on your notice of assessment let's say you put in it says ten thousand, and you put in twelve thousand well that's actually allowed you're actually allowed to contribute an extra $2,000 over the limit. Mm-hmm. You just make sure you kind of catch up to it next year. Next year they Or take the it year up. after, but you can carry a 2,000 limit with no penalty. Mm-hmm. Now, the one thing a lot of people have to be aware of is January and February, which we're in right now, can be used for the previous year or the year, year now. Mm-hmm. So if you contribute today, January 24th, that could be used for 2017. February 24th. Sorry. I just, I know what you meant. Good, good point. Thanks, Andy. We've got to, we got got to sleep in here. today. So what the yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I should know that. So February 24th, um, that could be used for either year. Mm-hmm. So 2017 or 2018's RSP contribution. But if you do make a mistake and, you do, and you've well over your limit, then best to see your tax preparer. Right. There is some ugly form you have to fill in. Mm. You give that to, and Andy's nodding his hair, yeah, head that's here. Ugly. You don't. <laughs> yeah, it's an ugly one. It's a big form. And it's what I think it's 1% per month penalty. It's pretty serious, isn't it? Oh, it is. It yeah. does add up. Yeah. It adds up quick. And I would try to get this moved out of the RSP quickly um, so that you don't rack up penalty in, or penalties on this. Yeah. And, it's, and it's interest per month. So, number six, um, a spousal RSP. Who owns that money? Well, technically, you know, even though you contributed, it is your spouse's money. Hmm. So when they pull it out, they pay the tax on it. Yeah. But you know what? In marriage breakup, everything's owned by everybody. Yeah. And that's probably w- the biggest thing I do get is, you know what? I'm putting all this money into my husband's or my wife's RSP. What happens if, you know, if <laughs> we don't get a divorce? It? Yeah, we get divorced. Does, does he or she get it? And I said, no, no, everything's still split 50-50. Yeah. Okay, so it doesn't matter. Um, is it smart to dip into your RSPs when you're earning less money? And that is generally yes, mm-hmm. okay? The only exception is if you're really young and you, you may not, you take the money out and never, you may never get back in again. Yeah. So it, if it gets moved from one investment to another investment like a TFSA, then I would say yes, for sure. Mm-hmm. And does it make sense? Um, 
not to over does it make sense to over contribute well i would never suggest over contributing mm -hmm. so where would you like to put your income to is what andy and i look at and that's tax bracket management um, in a perfect world, I suggest maybe bringing your taxable income down to about 42000 mm -hmm. And that means that you've got it down to the 20% bracket. And you're going to, that way you've, you've got to save it at basically the 30% bracket or above. So, but I wouldn't recommend, if your income was seventy, I'd only put in enough to bring your income down to about forty-two, which is 28000 Right. I would never put in forty, even right. if you had a windfall. Save it for another year. Mm -hmm. And should I put my mortgage into my RSP? That is not as common as it used to be. It used to be quite a more, you know, back 20 years ago because interest rates were a lot higher. But when you put, you can have your mortgage in your RSP. However, you're only going to get the same rate as the mortgage. So a current, whatever the market rate is, so 3.5%, you do have to pay CMHC fees and there may be a, an ongoing fee and, a, and there's setup fees. So when it's all said and done, you're actually investing at whatever the mortgage rate's at. There's right. no real great deal. So your rate of return would just become 3.5% mm -hmm. or 3%, whatever your mortgage is at. And lastly, what about in-kind transfers? Okay, what happens if there's a loss or a gain on my investments? So if you had some, say, Bell Canada shares and you wanted to move them into your RSP, mm -hmm. what happens? Well, if they made money, they would trigger capital gain. So you do have to report that capital gain um, on your tax return just like any other capital gain. But what, let's say you lost money. You bought them at $50 a share and now they're $40 a share. Do you get the capital loss? And for some strange reason, you don't, okay? You do not get the capital loss. You only have to pay a capital gain. So the government wins on this one. So if, if it, you're from a loss position, I would cash in the Bell Canada stock, take the loss, and then I would take that money and add it to the RSP. And that way you get to claim the loss. Right. Okay. So there's the top 10 for RSPs for this year. And I know once you have all this money, there's another type of RSP called a locked-in retirement account. And that actually, I want to talk about that because it was a question that was sent in by a listener. And the, and the question was, I'm leaving my job and I'm wondering if I should leave my money in the defined benefit pension plan or should I take it out as a lump sum? And so in our business, we call this a commuted value. It's the, the representation or the dollar amount that your pension is worth. And they do a calculation to figure out what that number is going to be. Um, and it's a question that Canadians are going to face, you know, quite often as you switch jobs, definitely. Yeah. And, um, or as you contemplate leaving the workforce, heading into retirement, and you think about, should I start drawing a pension or should I take the equivalent dollar amount out of the pension plan? So a quick list of five questions to answer or, or consider when you're thinking about this. But this is, a, this is a very, very tricky area and a very complex area in terms of the decision process. You need to speak to a professional about it. At Investors Group, we have uh, it's a, literally a three-page pension transfer review and checklist, which goes through a number of series of checks, not only at the at the individual financial planner level, but also at the regional director level and at our head office compliance level to make sure that the client is well informed before they make the decision to commute their pension because it's locked in stone. Yeah. Whether whichever route you go, yeah. it's it. It's done. Um, so number one, question number one is how healthy are you? And so the longer you live, the more valuable a pension is. Mm -hmm. And that makes sense because you're going to continue to get those benefits. The check comes in every single month. And um, 
Uh, and in case if you do die and you have a survivor benefit for the life of your spouse, maybe at a reduced rate typically, but that's going to continue for their life as well. So if you're in excellent health and your parents lived well into their 90s, I would say that tilts the decision in the favor of staying in the pension plan in general. Uh, on the other hand, though, if, you have, if you're in poor health or you have shortened life expectancy, taking a lump sum is more attractive because the commuted value is calculated on a normal life expectancy. Mm-hmm. So you're going to get the same amount of money out of the plan that somebody who would live into their 80s. And if you might only live into your 70s, you're going to get uh, obviously more money yeah. versus uh, and still have that available for your estate as well. <clears throat> so living a long time is uh, is going to be a key part of the question. And it's a tricky one to answer because nobody knows when they're going to die. I, we joke about it, say, well, if you can tell me when you're going to die, I'll tell you exactly yeah. when the what the decision should be. Makes it easier. Yeah, it makes it a lot easier. Now, question number two is how healthy is your pension plan? And uh, and I've run across this several times, but the, the, the truth is, is that, you know, somebody might be leaning towards taking a lump sum or taking their pension and we might be thinking, wow, you should just, you know, keep keep it in the pension plan because they're giving you a very good benefit. Maybe there's some indexing involved. Um, but then you, if you look deeper and you look at, well, what is the strength or what position is the actual pension plan in? Yeah. And we all know, of course, what happened to Nortel. We all know the stress that has existed around Stelco mm-hmm. in terms of the viability of pensions. So you can go on to the Financial Services Commission of Ontario, the FSCO website. All pension plans are listed there, and all pension administrators have to provide an actuarial or an accounting of their plan and provide a funding ratio. So are you 80% funded? Are you 100% funded? Are right. you you know 50% funded? And when you see a funding that is in a low category, like an 80%, 70%, that means there's a shortfall in, in the plan. Right. And the company has to put more money into that plan to make it viable and bring it on side. And they will usually be in discussions with the province to figure out what the strategy is going to be, how long they can, how much time they have to do that. But the compounding uh, issue around that might be maybe the company is struggling financially. Mm. And you're going to know more than I do because, and I've heard people say, this company's in trouble. I need to get my pension money out. I don't think they're going to be in business in the next five years, three years, whatever it is, because they've worked in the industry. They've Mm. worked in the company. They know how it's being managed. So often we'll get that sort of emotional, but also, you know, the feet on the ground information that helps tell us about the viability the pension because the last thing you want to be going through is you know suddenly getting a letter that your pension is underfunded yeah. and that um, you know there's an a, there's an appeal to the to the courts to reduce benefits mm-hmm. right <laughs> not what you want to hear when you're a retiree <clears throat> question number three is uh, how do you feel about managing money and you know this this is our job, this is our business, but it's not your business. Mm-hmm. And so when you have a pension and you get that check every month, you've transferred all the risk to somebody else in terms of those decisions and all the ongoing administration. Mm-hmm. So the pension plan administrator is looking after it, no problem. Now you tra- you take that money out, you are now responsible yeah. for the ongoing investment and management. Yes, you're going to probably work with a professional. You're going to get uh, advice on an ongoing basis, but it is your money and you need to be aware of what does it mean? How is it going to work? And, um, you know, so the, the, the other factor with respect to taking that money out is that interest rates are at historic lows. Yeah. 
And when the actuaries determine what is your commuted value dollar amount going to be, it has to be a function of enough money to produce your payment, your regular payment, based on current interest rates. Right. So commuted values right now are kind of bubbled, they've bubbled up, they're artificially higher, they're, the numbers are bigger right now because interest rates are low. Right. With high interest rates, you don't need as much money right. to generate the same monthly sure. payout. So that's also, that's obviously been attractive to people because that larger principal payment is, is available. Number four, what is your risk tolerance? And um, you know, you might have some knowledge about managing money, but how comfortable are you with the volatility that investments have? Yeah. So it's not uncommon. I've seen you know hydro pensions, other big like one point five million dollar commuted value figures are out there. Mm-hmm. If your one point five million drops by ten percent, that's a hundred and fifty thousand dollars. Hmm. How do you feel? about that, that this is your retirement nest egg just dropping by 150 grand. Mm. You're going to see that on your quarterly statement, on your monthly statement, on your online statement, whatever you're looking at, and if that's going to keep you up at night, boy, Mm -hmm. there's there's a lot to be said about peace of mind for that. And again, it's always interesting how when it goes down, it always goes down by dollars. That's right. Uh, okay. Uh, <laughs> it goes up, it goes by percent. But, oh, that 10%, oh, no, that's 100 grand, though. It's yeah, different. Yeah. And, it, you know, it, it, you feel a lot more. Leaving your money in a pension, uh, you never see these figures, right? Mm-hmm. You would never see that fluctuation. Yeah, you just yeah. get your regular check. Uh, number five, and the final question, which is, do you work in the public sector? And most public sector workers are inclined to leave their money in the pension plan. That's because government pensions are more secure and they're generally indexed to inflation. So your benefits don't erode over time. Most private pensions, on the other hand, usually provide little of any protection against inflation. And that's why most often private sector employees will take this lump sum. So if you're 40 years old and you're looking at, you're leaving your company and you're Deferred pension isn't going to start for 25 years till age 65. Well, then that's, you know, your normal life expectancy of 20 years. It's a long time to have that plan without any indexing. So it, uh, it may make sense to take it out from yeah. that. So I had a, I had a, a client situation too, where we, we, um, had came across the commuted value decision and the individual was going to be, they're 58 years old and they were looking at uh, a lump sum, a commuted value of $185,000 from their pension. And so the option was receive a immediate immediate pension now, starting in March for $736 a month, or at age 65, the normal retirement pension for $849 a month, mm-hmm. or a lump sum of 185000 Now that 185000 if they take the commuted value, 74000 is considered an excess, and this would be taxed in mm-hmm. the year it's done. Right. So boom, you get a T4 for 74000 Fortunately, in this case, they have enough RSP room, the carry forward room, they can roll that 74,000 into the RSP and not pay any tax on it right now. Right. So the other 111,000 would have to go into a lira, as Don was saying, a locked in retirement account. And in Ontario, we have a unique benefit where when you decide to start getting income from your locked in retirement account, this commuted value of pension, you can unlock half of it. So half of it goes into an unlocked regular RIF account and the other half goes into a, a, a locked-in lifetime income fund. So basically out of 185000 55000 is going to be locked in in terms of how much money can come out of it. 
and the rest of it is going to be available for income stream. So what is the what is the rate of return that they're earning? Oh, and there was a 60% survivor benefit um, in case the person died, right. if they left the pension. And there were discussions about ad hoc increases, meaning that from time to time, the board of directors might give an increase, but generally that would be under un- normal cir- right. not normal circumstance for sure. So indexing was really not a big issue. So at an immediate pension of 736, that's $8,832 a year. And based on the the total of 185,000, that's a 4.8% payout. So in other words, their investment owned personally, if they take this capital, would have to do at least 4.8% to match what they're receiving from this pension. And that's not a big number. Like 4.8% is certainly something that might be achievable based on a sort of moderate risk profile. Mm-hmm. So we have to understand someone's risk risk tolerance, et cetera. But uh, right out of the gate, the number looks, oh, you know what? We're tilting maybe towards taking. The final decisions, there's a lot to think about, you know, from an estate perspective, uh, you know, how much could would be left over at, at time of death. But basically looked at for 25 years, if they took the commuted value, the 185,000, and they were to earn uh, 4% and they use the money up over 25 years, so this would take them to age 83, they could take $966 a month instead of 736. Mm. If they got 5%, they could take 1065 a month. And if they got 6%, they could take 1168 per month for 25 years. And if they died prior to that, there would be a value rem- left over to their estate and to their spouse. And anything in these plans becomes unlocked when the individual owns it, dies. We are planning your financial future. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from Investors Group Financial Services, Inc. 905-529-7165. That's 905-529-7165. Leave a message now. They will return your call. And take a peek at the website, andyanddon.com. You can listen to old shows there and even ask a question via the listener inquiry button. That's Andy and Don, all one word, dot com. We're coming right back. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from Investors Group Financial Services, Inc. New time for the show. Uh, moving on from today, of course, between 8 and 9 a.m. every Saturday morning. Of course, you can call Investors Group Financial Services, Inc. at 905-529-7165 and check out the website at andyanddon.com. And that's andyanddon.com. All right, in the world of finance, what's normal, what isn't? Yes, we're all seeing the uh, fluctuations of the markets these days, mm-hmm. and they're getting attention. It's absolutely incredible how much attention they're getting. And I, and I got this interesting uh, email. I'm, I'm, I subscribed to uh, Carl Richards, and mm-hmm. he's a behavioral investor. Right. And he basically drew a straight line for half the page and then went up and down, up and down, up and down for the other half of the page. Mm-hmm. And he goes over the straight line, not normal, and the ups and downs are the normal. Yeah. That is normal. In fact, it's very weird that the what we had go on in 2017. We had, uh, I believe, every single month was positive in 2017. That was because of Donald Trump, wasn't well, it? According to him, that was why the markets <laughs> went up. Um, and uh, he also came back saying, well, the markets should never go down when, the, yeah. when there's good economic news. I heard news. him say that. He <laughs> goes, know? how does the markets go down when there's good economic news? Clearly, he doesn't have a handle on how this works. This is it's <laughs> quite, you know, I, I, I'd like to... S- I could prove him wrong so many times over. It's not <laughs> funny because in, in light of great economic news, there's, there's corrections. In fact, the average correction every given year 
on average, is 14%. Mm-hmm. And we didn't have one in 2017. Yeah. So now that there's this correction, also, wow, do we, is it at the peak? What are we doing? And really, the Dow Jones industrial average got up to just around 26,000. And it dropped to closer to 23,000 intraday, meaning mm-hmm. somewhere through the day. So it dropped a little over 10%. Okay, from the absolute peak to the absolute trough. Now, who's to say it doesn't go back up or down from now? You know, nobody knows. But at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Um, and Warren Buffett has all sorts of great little Warren Buffett-isms. And uh, one of them was, he doesn't care if the market closed today at all. Hmm. Period. Just close it down. I didn't invest for today. As long as it opens up in five years when I'm ready to do something. Yeah. Because... You know, if you, in his words, if I'm not going to invest for, for 10 years, I'm not going to invest for 10 minutes. Yeah. Okay. It's long-term investing. And, and he likes thinking 10-year chunks, but certainly five-year chunks should be looked at. So it's, there's some mistaken conclusions that people have. What do we have to do? You know, what should we do about the markets? And we actually, I did have one question. It's kind of interesting because all of a sudden he's near retirement. He started looking at it. As you know, on um, the market, you know, as your money gets up a little higher, um, a 10% drop is a lot bigger because yeah. we go by dollar terms again. Right. And he, he recognized that, wow, I'm down X um, dollars. I said, well, it actually worked out to a 3.2% drop. Mm-hmm. It's just that you have a lot more money now. Yeah. Okay. And considering the market dropped a lot more than that, that wasn't too bad. And so he had to kind of go through that again. But we, you know, basically we're out of practice. We haven't seen a down market for a while. Yeah. So the big mistake generally is pulling the money out of the market. And really at the end of the day, human nature is generally a failed investor. When it comes to, we're not wired to make money. So if we, we end up getting kind of an emotional to the mm-hmm. money and what we should we do, st- stick to the plan. And as long as you are goal focused and plan driven, you'll be fine. Because the idea is a long-term goal and we have, and Andy and I created a financial plan for you. So stick to the plan. Do not be, and I repeat, do not be market focused, okay, and return driven, mm-hmm. at least in the short term. Now, you can be return driven for the longer term, and that's the only thing that we can predict is the longer term, how investments work. Short term, we have no idea. So, first of all, nobody can call the top of the market. At the same time, nobody can call the bottom. Mm-hmm. So, yes, it would have been great to sell it at 26000 and buy it back at 23000 but nobody would have known. And we actually don't even know how shallow or deep this correction is. All we do know is any downturn is temporary mm-hmm. because over the long term, things continue to rise. And, and best to just think long term, invest for the long term, and look at this as perhaps an opportunity. If you're still accumulating money, you're not a retiree. If you see a bit of a, a dip like we just saw, look at it as a buying opportunity. Yeah. I'm going to switch gears and talk about powers of attorney. Mm-hmm. Powers of attorney. And uh, this sort of, what triggered this was I was trying to reach a client uh, in the last month or so about um, just a follow-up and TFSAs, et cetera. No answer, no answer, no answer. And it turned out that um, they had moved into a retirement residence. Mm. Now, this individual is 90. So, and that didn't surprise me very much. But in the last several months, her her um, health had dra- dramatically changed to yeah. the point where cognitively she was not interested in money anymore. Right. She was not interested in her finances. And so that meant that it was time to start dealing with the power of attorney. Yeah. 
So we did get a call back finally and had a meeting with the client and uh, the daughter who is power of attorney, and they provided me with the power of attorney document. And it just sort of, as we read through it, what I came to realize is that this document was what we call a springing power of attorney. And we're going to talk a little bit about what that means. But I want us to just sort of back up for a minute here, because in terms of the types of power of attorney that you can have, there are two main types of powers of attorney. One is for your property, so your real estate, your investments, mm-hmm. everything that you own and that type of thing. And the other is for your personal care. And the power of attorney for personal care is often known as a, maybe a health care proxy or health care directive, and in some contexts it's referred to as a living will. But basically, I want to focus a little, just mostly on the power of attorney for property and some of the things that we need to know about why these are important and some of the pitfalls around them. And the types of power of attorney that uh, we talk about, the power of attorney for your property is either going to be a general power of attorney, a limited power of attorney, a continuing or enduring power of attorney, and something we called a springing power of attorney. And um, most power of attorneys uh, are both general and enduring, but I'm going to tell you a little bit more about the springing power of attorney and why that might be problematic. Uh, We'll get to that in one second. Going to take a quick break here. We are planning your financial future. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from Investors Group Financial Services, Inc., 905-529-7165. We're coming right back. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from Investors Group Financial Services, Inc. Call now. They'll return your call. Leave a message at 905-529-7165. That's 905-529-7165. And take a peek at the website at andyanddon.com. That's andyanddon.com. We're talking about powers of attorney. Yeah. So this was a situation, again, where a client of mine who is no longer really interested in handling her finances anymore is looking to her power of attorney, her daughter, to look after her ongoing finances, mm-hmm. etc. And um, so in the document that was provided to us, the original power, powers of attorney, it, it had specific wording that this power powers of attorney will become effective upon a diagnosis or a medical practitioner deeming me to be mentally incapacitated. Right. And so um, this meant that the power of, powers of attorney was not in effect until a medical professional said so. had said so. Right. And the the challenge around that is that it's a, it's a very very um, un it's 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 a very uncomfortable process yeah. because a medical doctor is really testing the individual's capacity in in ways that is sort of you know pushing them to the limit and making them very uncomfortable because everybody wants to pass the test. They don't want to fail the test. So, um, so now once that goes on to your medical records that you have in fact be deemed mentally incapacitated or incompetent, Mm -hmm. then that triggers a whole bunch of other issues as well. So I'm not a big fan of these. And I just want to say, you know, I'm not a lawyer. Don's not a lawyer. We're not giving legal advice at all. And mm-hmm. it's important that you seek professional legal advice when it comes to your powers of attorney and your will. So we're just talking about in generality. And there may be situations where the springing power of attorney is an important part of it. But generally, the reason people might use a springing power of attorney is that they don't want the the person or the individual they're giving the powers of attorney to to have any ability to do anything uh, while they're still competent. Right. So, you know, we hear of stories where maybe a power of attorney has sold somebody's house from under them or mm-hmm. sold property from under them or, you know, done something 
scrupulous, be sort of right. behind the scene. This power of attorney kind of prevents that unless they can deem a client to be, the individual to be incompetent. Right. So not a big fan of it, but um, uh, the springing power of attorney is, uh, so now we're in waiting, we're in hold, because until that medical professional is giving their um, their their seal of approval that yeah. this person is not, is not competent, this power of attorney can't be used. Mm-hmm. So that's problematic because the person doesn't want to have yeah. to deal with stuff anymore, but they're maybe not far enough along to be incompetent. Right. So it may be worthwhile redrawing one. That's, I guess that's the idea. You can have multiple power of attorney documents. And so you can provide more than one power of attorney. So you might have one obviously for property and the personal care, but you might have a power of attorney that allows one person to deal just say with your real estate. And you could have a second power of attorney that allows an individual to deal with your other financial matters. And so having general or multiple power of attorney, it, it could create a conflict of interest in some ways. But the most important thing is in Ontario is you want to make sure that you don't accidentally revoke your old power of attorney when you create a new one. Mm. <clears throat> and in Ontario, you'd have to tell your lawyers f- that your intention is that you're going to have a multiple power of attorney in place. And so, um, you know, I think that the, 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 the main thing that I think about in terms of power of attorneys too is... Is there important to have it? Yeah, absolutely. It's without it, you know, a court order will have to be required to give someone authority to make decisions as to your finances, your personal care. And is it a bad thing? Well, you aren't choosing the person in this case, right? Some of the courts are going to choose right. the person. Um, you don't define the parameters of his or her authority and your immediate decisions uh, may be necessary. And obviously um, it may be expensive as well mm-hmm. and time consuming is the mm-hmm. other part. Uh, the power of attorney for personal care is really designed to help deal with any health care decisions, nutrition, shelter, clothing, hygiene, and safety. So you obviously want to have somebody who knows you or is intimate with you in, yeah. in that process and as opposed to the an institution. And um, the attorney uh, basically acts on your behalf with respect to, we talk about property now, with your finances. So the attorney under the general power of attorney can deal with pretty much everything to do with your uh, investments, your property, et cetera. They can pay bills. They can manage your real estate and investments. They can pay your taxes and file your tax returns. They can sign most documents. They can sell your house. They can mortgage your property and they can also gain access to your safety deposit box. Mm. So you have to be aware of all of these things that are available. Um, Everybody should have a power of attorney. Business owners in particular should have one. And uh, it doesn't need to be effective immediately. And we talked about the springing power of attorney. Um, But you can also have a power attorney that's for a specified time period. Let's say you're going to be out of the country for three months or for two months. You can create a power of attorney for that two-month period that would allow someone here, look after your affairs. It has a start date, it has an end date, and that's it. Hmm. Okay? And... um, so the formalities of, a, of an enduring power of attorney for your property is a general rule to be valid. The donor, you must be an adult, you must be mentally competent, and the, uh, the power must also be in writing. It must be witnessed, and it must state that uh, the power should be last uh, even if the donor becomes incompetent. You want to make sure that that's key. So if you lose mental capacity, you want this to still be in place. Mm-hmm. Okay, And when we think about... Um, uh, moving, what happens if the donor moves? So before moving to another jurisdiction, the donor should find out if the power of attorney will be valid in the new jurisdiction. Uh, 
Is there specific powers granted that are consistent with the rules in the new jurisdiction? And if a, do- a donor is no longer competent at the time of the move, it may be too late to make any of these changes as well. Mm-hmm. I, we, we've got a lot I want to talk about in terms of power of attorney, so I'm sure when we come back next week, I'm going to fill you in with some more stories and some more uh, to-dos with respect to your powers of attorney. And don't forget, next week, uh, brand new time for the show for planning your financial future between 8 and 9 o'clock. Uh, as we move forward from this week. So planning your financial future next week, starting at 8 a.m. If you'd like to call Investors Group Financial Services, Inc., 905-529-7165. That's 905-529-7165. Leave a message. They'll uh, call you back. And don't forget, check out the website at andyanddon.com. That's andyanddon, one word, dot com. Thank you, gentlemen. We'll Thank see you, next you week. Scott.